I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the situation surrounding China and Taiwan, we have with us Dr. Bonnie Lin, who is a senior fellow for Asian security at CSIS, and she's also the director of our China Power Project, which you know, many of you, I'm sure, have visited that website. Extremely informative, has the latest maps and diagrams of China's military exercises surrounding Taiwan. And Bonnie, so good to have you here. Thank you so much for reminding me, Andrew. It's a really critical time to understand what's happening around Taiwan Strait and what exactly China is doing. So, Bonnie, what are they doing? You've mapped out through, I believe, Monday this week, August 8th, all the things that China has done. Can you describe what you think they're doing and what effect is it going to have? Sure. So what China did was starting about late last week with the more clear information that Speaker Pelosi was intending to travel to Taiwan. But of course, we didn't really know the final result until she actually landed in Taipei. China began a series of military operations and culminating in a major military exercise from lasting from August 4th to 7th to demonstrate its displeasure and to try from their perspective to try to drive a wedge between the United States and Taiwan, as well as impose costs on Taiwan for allowing Speaker Pelosi to land in Taipei. Now, what is the nature of these military drills that they've been carrying out? What, what are they doing? Are they bombing? Are they just sailing? Are they flying? What, what, what are they doing? So the short is a combination of everything. But these Chinese military activities actually started before Speaker Pelosi landed in anticipation of her arrival. And it also coincided with two events, which is Taiwan's annual major military exercise, the Hangwan military exercise, as well as what China celebrates as the People's Liberation Day, which is August 1st. That is the day of the founding of the People's Liberation Army. And then shortly after that, so China already started escalating activities in late July, early August because of those two activities. And then China further escalated as Speaker Pelosi arrived. The most significant activities occurred after actually she left Taipei. What's relatively clear was China was relatively cautious to not escalate against the United States. So there were a number of Chinese netizens as Speaker Pelosi's plane was traveling en route to Taipei saying that the Chinese PLA should either launch missiles to strike Pelosi's plane or China should strike the escorts accompany uh, Speaker Pelosi's plane or maybe even try aggressive intercepts. China didn't attempt any of those major activities. I mean, that's all crazy and- stuff. Yeah, it was it was quite escalatory, the rhetoric coming from Chinese netizens. And are we still seeing that rhetoric coming from the Chinese people? We saw a bit of censorship on Chinese Weibo, which is their equivalent of Twitter. But we are still seeing a bit of nationalist rhetoric to the extent that the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually came out during their press statement and said to the Chinese people, please have both patience and confidence that the Chinese government will respond firmly to Speaker Pelosi's visit. Okay, so on our side, the United States, the Biden administration 
doesn't says it doesn't want to escalate this confrontation, but they're also vowing to continue sailing warships through the Taiwan Strait and conduct air operations in the region in response to Chinese military drills. Why are we doing that? Well, maybe before I get to that, let me talk a little bit about what exactly was so unprecedented about these Chinese military activities to get to the follow-on question that you have. So what's what was quite new and significant about China's military exercises from August 4th to 7th was the six major exercise zones that China announced. These six zones surrounded Taiwan in most major directions and were also placed at key locations. So one of the zones, for example, was placed at what Beijing views as the narrowest neck of the Taiwan Strait. Another zone was placed right by the Bashi Channel, which is a key waterways for Taiwan. And then another zone was placed, two zones were placed quite close to Taipei. So all of these activities were significantly closer to Taiwan than some of China's previous large exercises. The most proximate one that we can refer to occurred in 1995-1996, but those exercises were not nearly as close to Taiwan. So that brings us to your question of the U.S. government. And I think what you were explaining was that the U.S. government did not try to, for example, run the Chinese exercise. It did not try to sail a vessel down the Taiwan Strait as China was engaging in these exercises. But we did see that a number of U.S. military assets were already there because of Speaker Pelosi's visit, not far from Taiwan, but outside of the Taiwan Strait, which is not too different from how we position some military assets outside of the Taiwan Strait, similar to the 95-96 Taiwan Strait crisis. I would characterize the U.S. response to this as allowing China, from the Biden administration's perspective, to act out uh, and express their frustration against Taiwan, clearly showing that China is the bully in this case, and clearly showing that Taiwan is the victim and demonstrating how, how belligerent China is escalating against a visit, just an official visit, of which we actually didn't see anything major from the visit. For example, we didn't, Speaker Pelosi did not significantly strengthen Taiwan's defense. Speaker Pelosi didn't announce any major new initiatives with Taiwan. It was purely a visit by a U.S. speaker, which is not frequent, but has happened before. Yeah, Newt Gingrich. That's right. That's right. So it's it's not, it's, it, it, it isn't unprecedented, and it's also, you've seen it from both sides of the aisle. Right. So now we're seeing it from the Democratic side, her visit. Mm-hmm. So, Bonnie, some have said that this really isn't about her visit, but rather it's a turning point in China's strategy towards Taiwan. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> I largely agree with that. And Jude Blasha and I, we have a, a piece published in Foreign Affairs in August 1st, right before uh, Speaker Pelosi landed in, in uh, Taiwan, where we argued that we already saw shifts in China's approach towards Taiwan, but also towards its neighbors in general, as China is digesting its lessons learned from Ukraine. So one of our takeaways and how China assesses what how Russia got itself in Ukraine and the situation that Russia was facing is that China did not does not believe that the United States or NATO took Russian security concerns, uh, understood Russian security concerns, sympathized, or even really Russia had a chance at diplomacy. 
And if you look at it from the Chinese perspective, they're seeing themselves in the same boat, right? It's not clear that the diplomacy with the United States or our archaeology in the region is working. So if you're in that situation where diplomacy is not getting you what you want, perhaps China needs to think about a use of force, demonstrate its resolve, and incur enough pain on either Taiwan or the United States or the international community so that we recognize from their perspective what we're doing is wrong. Obviously, that is not how D.C. is taking this crisis or China's action. So there's definitely a degree of miscalculation on China's end. So China, in a white paper that the government published yesterday, Wednesday, they said that they would prefer unification by peaceful means, but also made clear that they were keeping all options on the table. So what does that mean for our policy going forward? What should we be thinking about? So I would note, Andrew, that the white paper that you just mentioned, those particular, those two parts, they're not new at all. They're not new. They're not new developments that occurred after Pelosi's visit, nor are they new developments under Xi Jinping. China's overall basic guidance has always been peaceful unification, one country, two systems for Taiwan. And China has for quite some time said that we will reserve the option to use force. I think the question that you're getting at is how do we understand this paper and link it to sort of the China's most recent exercise? And we're actually doing a survey right now. I just sent out the information to some of the key leading experts and practitioners in the United States to look at as you digest the recent events and the survey, do you think that China will become more aggressive moving forward or not? So I'll offer you my thoughts, and hopefully you'll see this larger survey with the views of many more people in addition to me. My sense is that what this paper is showing is it's trying to capture Xi Jinping's views and the Chinese government views after a major event, in some ways to reassure the international community that China's position hasn't changed. So for example, if we saw in this paper that China's goal was no longer peaceful reunification, their term, but reunification, that would be a clear signal that the crisis meant that China is now on its different path. But we don't see that. We see a lot of continuity. Another reason for this paper right now is that it sets the framework for what we might see in the 20th Party Congress. And again, what's a key section of the paper that mentions that moving forward, how China will try to achieve unification. And what it says is that national development and progress set the direction for cross-strait relations. So in other words, China believes that as it becomes more and more powerful, both not only in military terms, but economic terms, that it will be able to determine the terms, in some cases dictate the terms to Taiwan for unification, and that unification is still largely the trend because of the growing power imbalance. That, to me, as you read that, it does not signal that China needs to move on Taiwan tomorrow. It signals a longer trend is in China's direction, and China could have the ability to wait. The bigger issue is even if China it is more patient than some U.S. experts might assess it to be, is if China might feel that now it has established some new baseline from their perspective of being able to operate around much closer to Taiwan and using a significant military operation to counter Speaker Pelosi's visit, if that sets newer expectations for Xi Jinping and China to have to escalate a lot more every other time it sees another provocative activity, what, what it assesses to be provocative activity from the United States and Taiwan. That, I believe, is the more dangerous scenario moving forward, that China believes that it can act, it can escalate more, and is much more willing to respond to U.S. and Taiwan, what it views as problematic U.S. and Taiwan activity. 
minutes. So even though you don't feel like anything is imminent here, and I take it you're from the camp that the Chinese are going to show strategic patience with this matter, are they trying to make these military exercises, these aggressive military exercises, routine? Yes, for sure. So let me first go back to a point. I don't think I am in the camp that China has significant strategic patience. I only say that China has strategic patience if they could set the course of events. But the problem is they don't believe that they can necessarily set the course of events because they have to respond to U.S. activities, Taiwan activities, and the range of activities that they find problematic keeps on growing, right? So they have patience per se, but they actually don't have tolerance of activities. And they're going to react to what we do. Yes. Uh, The new normal, as you replied, was that China is going to engage in more exercises, larger scale, closer to Taiwan, and likely closer and closer to Taiwan. So far, we have not seen from these most recent military exercises that China has operated manned aircraft in or above Taiwan's airspace or military vessels in Taiwan's territorial waters. But we did see China sending drones, so unmanned aircraft, over Taiwan's offshore islands. And the Taiwan military uh, sent flares against them. So a possible next step could be that China starts sending drones. So unmanned aircraft over Taiwan's, the main island's airspace. But I think to see that, China would look for another excuse, like look for, for example, another major event or activity taken by the U.S. or Taiwan to further escalate beyond that. So what's a major event? We're saying our Defense Department and other senior officials are saying we're just going to continue doing what we do, which is we're going to sail and fly through the Taiwan Strait. And we might not be provocative and send the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Is that is that a provocation in and of itself to give China excuses to become more aggressive? Or is that just the matter of course here and this is going to be kind of a stalemate going forward? It's definitely going to be a long game between China, United States, and Taiwan as to some of the particulars. So for example, if we were to sail a military vessel, but not an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait in the coming weeks, which I believe is what we're going to be doing, China would view that as provocative, but it would not provide enough justification like the Pelosi visit because it's still relatively rare and it's full of political symbolism. Whereas we do a lot of, well, not a lot, but we do regular Taiwan Strait transits. They will respond and we likely expect the Chinese response to our military vessel to be more than before the August 2022 exercises, but I don't think significantly more. Do we run the risk of, you know, confrontations, collisions, things of that nature? Yes, we do. But that risk isn't just on the U.S. side, right? Chinese operators also have that risk on their end. So the key thing moving forward is how do we, not only for the United States, but also for Taiwan is, How do we balance our desire to manage escalation, to make sure that the risks don't spiral out of control with preventing China from further encroaching on Taiwan's airspace or maritime waters? Because that is the trend that China wants to do. And we will need to take some risk if we want to push China back. Let's talk about Xi Jinping for a second. Is he pushing this hard now? because of his own politics at home. As you pointed out, you know, on Weibo, there's been a lot of nationalistic rhetoric. Is there a political reason that he's pushing this now? There are 
I believe, political pressures that he is facing. And what some folks have noted was that it's interesting that Xi Jinping was relatively absent during the couple of days of the military exercise. I think we still need a little bit of time to figure out what exactly that means. But he is facing, for example, the 20th Party Congress, where some experts are saying that prior to the 20th Party Congress, she cannot afford to look weak in any way. Uh, he wants to consolidate his third term, and he wants that third term to start off on a strong footing. But on the other hand, he also does not want his third term to start off with a U.S.-China conflict or dealing with a conflict or crisis in Taiwan that could dictate his, the, the agenda for his entire third term. Right. So there, it's a def- delicate balance that he has to strike between appearing strong, but not making Taiwan the agenda for his third term. So how does Beijing and Washington deal with other issues of great importance while this is going on. It seems that China is trying to use climate as leverage. We have human rights issues. We have other issues in the South China Sea. We have intellectual property. The list is almost endless. How does the United States and China work constructively given this current environment? So I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but I do feel that what we just saw with the August exercises and the fact that Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi canceled his meeting with his Japanese counterpart and was not, has shown no desire, not that we actually asked him necessarily to meet in in Cambodia with uh, Secretary Blinken, we are seeing the repercussions of China's displeasure, not only in the form of the military exercise, but also largely with respect to cooperation with the United States and to some extent, Japan. We saw as one of the non-military responses, eight different ways in which China wanted to either cancel engagements on the military to military side or decrease cooperation among a range of international issues, exactly like you mentioned on climate change, as well as dealing with opioids and whatnot. But I would note that all the major areas, with exception of two of the mill-mill dialogues that China either canceled or suspended, we weren't making too much progress on those areas anyways with China. And in fact, in some of those areas, we had wanted more progress on China. China was not able to necessarily deliver them at the pace and rate that we wanted. So what do we do now? Do we redouble our efforts and pick something specific like climate or trade or what do we do? The best approach now is to actually deal with the main issue head on, which is Taiwan, right? We do need to demonstrate some support to Taiwan because of the fact that China engaged in this unprecedented exercise. And I believe sailing a ship or engaging in other operations through the Taiwan Strait is one way to do that. I don't believe, for example, that if we try to work on issues that I sort of place as a second tier climate change, if we even if we made substantial progress on that, Unless we deal with the core issues, I don't think it's going to fundamentally change the nature of what we're seeing as deteriorating U.S.-China relations. You know, as CSIS War Game, which was reported on on August 9th by the Wall Street Journal, a war game that we did shows that it would be very difficult for China to actually invade and occupy Taiwan against the United States, against Taiwan. And I'm assuming China is acutely aware of how hard this would be for them. Yes. 
and I am I very much applaud that war game for showing how difficult it is because some of the other war games, which are actually tested to challenge the United States, some of the results of those war games have been interpreted by some U.S. analysts as saying the U.S. would lose in those war games. And, and I think that th- that's not just not a correct understanding of how we design war games. Sometimes we design war games to stress test the United States, giving the most difficult conditions and positing a much stronger China than China actually is versus other war games like the CSIS one, which does not assume China is 10 feet tall, giving it gives China what its current capabilities are with some extrapolation beyond that. What I would note is that as we think about whether China has the ability to engage in an evasion an increasing line that I'm hearing in D.C. that I am very concerned with is that more folks are making the case that it's more it's better for China to invade Taiwan because it will allow China a more secure victory over Taiwan than if China were to engage in lesser operations, including a blockade. Folks are making the case that it's actually more risky for China to do a blockade than an invasion. And I completely disagree with that because a blockade is so much easier to execute and you can, in some ways, control it better to both increase the escalation or decrease the escalation than an actual invasion. Right. And once you invade, you're, you're in and then you've got to build and hold and all the other things that have to happen. So, well, Bonnie, this has been fascinating. Thank you for your work in this space and for sharing some of your really important insights with us today. Thank you for asking me to join you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 